I wonder how many hearts have been broken over the years. As families have watched someone that they loved, someone that they cared about, they thought was living as a Christian. And then that person has decided to take another course. Has decided no longer to live by the standards of Scripture, by the standards of Christianity, by the standard of what is pleasing to God. And those hearts have been broken as they have wondered about the fate of their loved one. There are many in this world, and it's okay because once you become a Christian, you are always saved. I was speaking to him just recently. It's his mindset. That was his, his mentality. But it's important for us as Christians to reflect on this idea from time to time, not because we want to scare people, but because we need to remember that God expects us to live by His standards and to follow Him all of our lives. And so this morning we want to ask the question, what about the doctrine of once saved, always saved? Uh, this is a doctrine that many of our uh, religious friends and neighbors uh, live by. And so we want to look at Scripture and say, well, what does Scripture really teach about this? Is it really true that once you become a Christian, you are always saved, no matter what transpires in your life? That's really the key, what transpires in your life. So in order to discuss this question this morning, I want us to spend some time looking at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 31, and we're going to try to dig out of this passage and unpack this passage. And then we want to look at the influence of some other passages. And then we want to ask the question, well, how can a Christian be sure? How can a Christian be sure? So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, let's be turning to Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 31. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 31. So it hasn't been all that long ago that as a group, or as our, in our adult Bible class, we studied Hebrews, and, and if you were able to be in that class, you will remember that we talked about the fact that Hebrews seems to be written to a group of Christians, probably a, a very prominently Jewish group of Christians, who for whatever reason were discouraged and disappointed and, and perhaps considering returning to Judaism, and the Hebrew writer is making an argument to them don't do that because something better than Judaism is here, and that's Christ himself and Christianity. And so we come down to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19, and he gives them one of his final words about what might happen if you leave Christianity, if you leave Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. We want to uh, look at verse 19 through 25, kind of get the full of the immediate context but really we want to focus on 26 following. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way inaugurated, which he inaugurated uh, for us through his veil, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us strive with sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our 
sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed pure. We're washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not for our own habit of some, encouraging one another and all draw near. Let's pause there and notice the context that the Hebrew writer is writing in. He's reminding these Christians, look, look at what we have in Jesus. We have this new way. We have this living way that we have access to God. And as Christians, we're able to before God in worship, especially speaking, we're able to come before God with hearts that are fully sure. Fully sure. We don't have to doubt having Christ. We don't have to doubt the freedom from sin that we have in Christ because Jesus fully the way that the Hebrew writer says, is by the giving of his flesh, by the sacrifice he made. And for Christians, we can come before God at any time. And we don't have to doubt. And we don't have to worry about our faith. We don't have to worry about our salvation. Not because of anything that we have done, but because our hearts have been sprinkled clean. Because our bodies have been washed. That's what we have in Christ. Somebody wants to talk about once saved, always saved. Once you are saved, it's absolutely true that if you are walking in Christ, you're living your life in accordance with Jesus Christ, you absolutely, without any doubt, can know that you have salvation. God promised it. And God does not lie. God does not waver. So if you know that you are a Christian and that you're living a Christian life, it's there. There it is. And yet the Hebrew writer tells these Christians, let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching not forsaking the assembling of the saints, as is the custom of some, but stimulating, encouraging one another to love and good deeds. We have a responsibility to each other to encourage each other and to stimulate. Really, the Greek word there means to provoke. But that has a negative connotation. I'm going to provoke you. I'm going to, I'm going to provoke this person over here. Good enough. I'm going to get into this. But it's being used in a positive sense of encouraging. I mean, think about what that word stimulate means. Stimulate, provoke each other to love and good deeds. We're prodding each other to be active in love and good deeds. Why? Why is that necessary? And that's where verses 26 through 31 come into play in this discussion of what saved, always saved. Here's why it's 
necessary that we spend time encouraging each other, stimulating each other to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembling together in worship. Here's why. Verse 26. For if. For if. It's necessary that we encourage each other to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling of the, of the church, uh, because for if we sin willfully, after receiving a knowledge of the truth, or the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversary. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hand of the living God. The Hebrew writer says it's so important that we encourage each other because if anyone goes on sinning willfully, that is to say, continues to live in sin, instead of that sacrifice for sin remaining, it's no longer there. And the only thing that you have left is the terrifying expectation of judgment. Sacrifice is done away with. It's no longer there. So if your sacrifice for the sins in your life is gone, where are your sins? You still have them. You're still responsible for them. And so you only have that expectation of God's judgment, and that's not a good thing. And in a way, it's kind of worse for you because you know what it's going to be, as opposed to the person that is unaware of that. But what do you mean, Hebrew writer, to go on sinning willfully? Notice the comparison that he makes. Because he makes a very interesting comparison, and the comparison is a Jew's relationship with the law of Moses. Notice the comparison that he makes as we look at verse 28. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses. Did you notice that? Anyone who set aside the law of Moses. Talking to a Jewish audience who knows the law of Moses, knows what this is. This isn't someone who breaks one of those commandments. This is someone who looks at the Mosaical law and says, as a Jewish person, you know what? I don't need that anymore. I'm not going to live by any of it. I'm not going to abide by this covenant that God made with Moses at all. That's the comparison that he's making. If, he says, under the Jewish law, anyone that was a Jew who did that 
died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. In other words, if you're a Jewish person living during that Mosaic period and you looked at that law of Moses and you said, ah, I don't need to live that way anymore. I don't care about this law of Moses. And you just threw it out and said, I'm going to live this way over here under the Jewish law. If two or three witnesses were aware knew of that and spoke of that, that person who set aside the law of Moses was to be killed. And the Hebrew writer says, if that's what happened under the Jewish law, verse 29, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has done three things? Notice what these things, three things are. Who has trampled underfoot the Son of God. The Hebrew writer says, you're not talking about the law of Moses, some commandment stone that, that Moses transcribed. Remember, written by the finger of God the first time, that Moses tore up the tablets, so then Moses had to re remake them. Okay? Anyone who set that aside, this was their punishment. What do you think is going to happen when you're not talking about Moses the servant, but the Son of God himself? And you've trampled him underfoot. You've walked on him like he was a doormat. You, 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 you saw Jesus on the cross, and you, and you saw him hanging there, and you saw all his agony, and you saw the, the, the thorns on his brow, and you saw the, the, the nails in his wrists and his feet, and you saw the, the spear in his side. That's the first thing this person has done. Second thing the person has done, notice this in verse 29, and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. This language is very important. He is regarded as unclean. Now, some translations may say profane. Some translations may say common or ordinary. Remember, things in the Old Testament were either clean, sanctified, special, or they were common, ordinary, unclean. The idea of unclean here means that you consider this blood to be just ordinary, common, take it or leave it. This person has regarded the blood of the covenant to be ordinary. But he describes the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. In other words, the Hebrew writer acknowledges as the inspired writer, inspired by God, says or acknowledges that this is a person who has been sanctified by the blood of Christ. The blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Now that's important. Because there are some folks who believe in once saved, always saved, and they think, well, maybe this person just thought they were a Christian. Maybe this was someone that they went to church a lot, and they just kind of thought they were a Christian, but they weren't really a Christian. And that's why they fell away, because they weren't really a Christian in the first place. But the Hebrew writer, as an inspired writer of God, says that this person was sanctified. 
But this person says, you know what, that blood that sanctified me, that blood of the covenant that sanctified me, nothing special about that. Nothing special about the blood of Jesus. Nothing special about what God did for me on the cross. And then the third thing, has insulted the spirit of grace. The spirit of grace. Now, if you're trans... If you're Bible is published by the same publisher as mine. Spirit of Grace is probably capitalized. Spirit capitalized. Probably the, the, the right thought here is the attitude of grace that God had for us. The attitude of grace that God had for us. Has insulted, treated with hubris, literally in the Greek, the spirit of grace that God extended towards us. So in other words, this is a who goes out, blown it. They've sinned in some way, caved into temptation in some way. This isn't the person that is struggling with a recurring sin in their life. They just have a hard time getting past this, whatever this is over here. You see, the person that's struggling with something in their life and they know it's not pleasing to God, and they don't want to do it, and they are doing everything they can to get past this sin. You see, their focus, their idea is, this isn't pleasing to God, I don't want to do this, and I just got pulled into it one more time. And they're upset about it. And they're grieving. And they're ashamed. And they don't want to do it. But occasionally, they just get pulled back in. That's different than what the Hebrew writer is describing. The Hebrew writer is describing the person who looks at it all and says, I don't care anymore. I don't want to be a Christian anymore. I don't want to live that way anymore. The immediate context in which the Hebrew writer is writing, as we've already mentioned, it seems to us as we take the book of Hebrews as a whole that, he, that he's writing to Jewish Christians who are seriously contemplating returning back to Judaism for whatever reason. And there's entire books written on trying to understand their motivation of, the, of these, this original audience. But they're wanting to go back to a pre-Christian state and in doing so, leaving it all behind. Leaving it all behind. That seems to be what the Hebrew writer is concerned about. Is these Christians abandoning Christ to go back to something else? And he comes back to, as we look again in verse 27, rather than having that sacrifice of sins, well, why would the sacrifice be there? You've just said, I don't care for it. I don't want it. It's, it's no good to me. It's, it's common. It's ordinary. It doesn't mean anything to me. So you've kicked that sacrifice to the curb, so to speak, and there's nothing else that remains for you. That, those sins are with you. So the only thing that you have to look forward to, he says in verse 27, is the terrified expectation of judgment. Folks, you're not saved if that's where you're at. And there are some people that will live that way in their lives. Well, that's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 31. What are some other passages that enlighten us on this idea or speak to this idea? We need to consider others who suggest that once saved 
uh, always saved is a reality. Uh, sometimes uh, folks will go to Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. So let's look at Romans chapter 8 for just a second. Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39. In this passage, Paul again is talking about the awesomeness of God and what God has done for us, the relationship that we have in God. And notice what Paul says, Romans chapter 8, verse 38, as he speaks about the awesomeness of what God has for us. He says, verse 38, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And there are people that believe in this doctrine of once saved, always saved, and they will point to this passage and they will say, it's right there, right as day. Nothing can separate us from the love of God individual, no power, and that includes yourself. And that, folks, is scripture. I agree 100% with that. God's love for you is always there. It's always there. And nothing can separate us from God's love. But God has love for some other folks, too. John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18 talks about God's love for us, and we are really good at quoting the first verse in that section. John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Verse 20. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Folks, what does this passage say? That God so loved the world. It doesn't say that God loved the good people in the world. It doesn't say that He loved the mediocre people in the world. It doesn't say that He loved the people that tried to do their best but fell down every once in a while. It doesn't say that He loved the people that were pretty good 90% of the time, 80% of the time. You see where I'm going? He loved everybody. Very same passage in Jesus is speaking about God's love for the world, motivation for sending Jesus to the cross. In the very same statement, Jesus also says, but people will make a choice whether to come to the light or not. And there are dark consequences for those who choose not to come to the light. There are other passages that we could read that speak of of similar fates. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 speaks of the love of God. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 also speaks about the love of God. And yet in both of those 
passages. First John. John talks about those who refuse to hate their brother, those who refuse to come to God. Yet God still loves those. God still loves those. Folks, it's not a matter of us being separated from God's love. It's an issue of whether or not we follow what God desires for us in His life. If we're going to have the ability to enjoy that sacrifice for sins that He made for us. You see, we can reject it before. We can reject it after. And that's what the Hebrew writer is talking about. We have to grow in our faith. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 follows. Again, Peter is also writing to Christians in a different context. 2 Peter chapter 1. And he has this great passage. You and I know it well. We talk about it often. Verse 5 following. Make every effort to add to your faith moral excellence and to your moral knowledge. You can almost imagine uh, verses 5 through 9, this stair step of things that we are to add, make every effort to add to our faith. But then he says, verse 10, notice this. And we'll start in verse 8. He says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Peter says, look guys, as long as you are growing in your faith, as long as you are making every effort to, to apply to your faith moral excellence and, and knowledge and perseverance and, and self-control and, and brotherliness and, and you're growing in these things, as long as you have that, you're not short-sighted, you're not blind, you're seeing how God can use you uh, to produce fruit for His kingdom. And then it says, therefore make every effort. Be diligent to make sure your entrance into that heavenly kingdom. What's the implication? Implication is, first of all, that you're never going to stumble. It's possible that you do stumble. The idea of stumbling is not just trip, but to fall flat on your face. To stumble eternally. And he says, therefore, it's important for you to make sure that your entrance into his kingdom is secure. For in this way, verse 11, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior will be abundantly supplied to you. Verse 10, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Folks, we have to continue to live godly lives and to live Christian lives and, and to strive to to follow the will of God. So how can a Christian be sure of their salvation? Remember the passage that 
the Hebrew writer gives us in Hebrews chapter 10 is not merely talking about the individual who uh, occasionally messes up, who falls into sin. But this is the person who says, I don't want to live a Christian life anymore. I'm done with Christianity. I'm through with that. And they go back to a previous lifestyle outside the will of God. And they've rejected Christ. And there are ways that people can do that. You don't have to be a Jew returning to Judaism. You could be someone who goes back to the lifestyle that you had before you were a Christian. And, and if you're in Bible class this morning, we talked about some of those things in, in 1 Peter, but drinking parties, uh, pursuing a course of sensuality, uh, any of those types of things, living a life where you have no regard for God, basically. That's what we're talking about. That's what the Hebrew writer is, is, is talking about. Now, there are some people that they will go to church and they will be godly people in their lives. And then they'll quit going to church. And maybe they live pretty moral lives. Maybe they don't. But they still love God. They still have the idea of God in their mind. But something has just happened, so they're not going to church. What about those folks? Let's look at 1 John chapter 5. Or 1 John chapter 1, rather. First John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Folks, God is faithful to forgive us of our sins that we confess. We're all going to mess up from time to time. We all face different struggles with sin in our lives. They're different for different folks. But the reality is, God knows who's trying to walk in the light and who's not. And those who are trying to walk in the light, when they blow it, when they make a mistake, when they sin, they come to God and they confess that sin and they ask for God to heal them. Those who are Christians. And He heals them. And He takes away that sin. And the blood of Christ cleanses that individual. And we, because of the blood of Christ, as the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19, because of the blood of Christ, we're able to come before God's throne fully assured. Fully assured. But when we step out of Christ and we say, I don't want that anymore, then we have abandoned the only sacrifice that can take away our sins. Maybe you're here this morning. 
and you're one of those individuals that maybe this is the first time that you've heard the gospel. I don't really see anybody here like that this morning. But for those folks, they can enter the blood of Christ by being united with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection through baptism. Sometimes there are folks that have been away from church, as they sometimes say, or have been out of church. The guilt is just pouring over them. And regardless of what they've done during that dark period of time in their lives, the blood of Christ is still if we confess those sins. And we call in the name of Christ. The blood of Christ is there to cleanse us. You haven't kicked Christ to the curb. You haven't said, I, I want to reject Christ for my life. But maybe you've been away. The blood of Christ cleanses those who confess Him. Maybe you have other needs of the church. But whatever your needs this morning, won't you come? As together we stand and sing.